If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're using those Black Pew Bibles, you can find 1 Peter 4 on page 955. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 today as we make our way through this study of God and his elect exiles, a study of this letter by Peter. I think if I were to call this sermon something other than the sermon title, the title being The Weapon for Elect Exiles, and you'll see why the title is that way very soon, but if I were to give an alternative way to remember, what's this message going to be like? What's it about? It's the game, Would You Rather? I have five children. They're all in the home still. We play this game quite often. Dad, would you rather swim in muddy, dirty, stinky water or swim in clean, pure, pristine water, but fish are biting you? What would you rather have, Dad? Would you rather eat dirty food or drink dirty water? Do you know the game? Would you rather? And you have to make a choice. You have to pick one or the other. Like, well, I don't want either, kids. That's not how this game works, Dad. You have to pick one. And then, typically, you have to give your rationale. Well, honestly, I think water's more important to living, so give me the clean water. And I don't know how dirty the food will be, but I'll throw it in a blender or something and make it work. That was my rationale. All that to say, you're going to be proposed today in scripture with a a would you rather and what's most important is that you make a choice and know why you're choosing it in this case it's would you rather have intense suffering now in your life as a christian or have lots of pleasure in this life and not be a christian that's the option what would you rather have? Sign up for suffering now. Be a Christian. Face judgment as a Christian. Or would you rather have all the money, pleasure, fame, popularity, you name it. What would make you fleshly happy immediately, short term, right now? And you could have all of it. But then face the judgment as a non-Christian. That's the basic thrust of our text. It's a, would you rather have suffering as a Christian or sin without Christ? Let's read our text. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living 
and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And this ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, members of Embassy Church, we are in the presence of a spiritual war. We have a powerful weapon, but it'll do you no good if you don't put it on and put it to practice. We are in the presence of a spiritual war. The reality of the war is point one. Our text points to a war. The weapon that we need to fight in this war is point two. It's not just any weapon. It is a powerful weapon. It is the weapon of weapons. But it will do you and me no good if you don't put it on and learn how to use it. If you like W's, by the way, I thought war, weapon, wielding, W. I-E-L-D. There you go. There's the outline for the text. I would like you to first see and follow along with me in this text to realize the reality of this war. Really, this is more of a summary statement of all of 1 Peter, the context of our passage. But I want to point out that Peter's emphasis in 1 Peter is less on talking about spiritual warfare as Satan and demons. Although, if you turn your Bibles over or just look your eyes to 1 Peter chapter 5, notice that he will say explicitly in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. When we talk about spiritual war, oftentimes we think about spiritual warfare against demonic powers, invisible beings, heavenly bodies. And Peter is aware of these things and mentions them briefly in 1 Peter chapter 5. But when you summarize the war that Christians are in and the tone and the emphasis throughout the whole letter of 1 Peter and especially our text, the presence of the war is with the flesh and with the world. So Satan is real, but sin and suffering are a huge part of the war that we're fighting in this spiritual battle. Look at the way verse 1 says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. This is military language, this is battle language, and it's saying that you need to be ready to fight the war in a kind of thinking, so this is why it's a spiritual war, not a physical war. Christians are not known for violence, just on a little aside, when we talk about war and spiritual war, the emphasis here is on our thoughts, our desires, the things in our heart, things that you can't see. This is not about punching, fighting, sword carrying. That is the antithesis of being a follower of Jesus. The war is with suffering for being a Christian, arming yourself with a kind of thinking, verse 1 says, about suffering. Suffering to live in this world, verse 2 says, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
Notice the way verse 3 is going to make very clearly the worldly opposition. So again, there's suffering coming from malignment by you not participating in the activities of the Roman emperor state. This is political, this is religious, and it's personal. It's not one or the other. The New Testament doesn't have these nicely divided, here's your personal life and what you do at home, that's for you. And then here's the public sphere and here's politics. All of these things are kind of consumed together in just being a citizen. And what Peter's trying to teach these Christians is that they cannot give allegiance to Caesar and pay tribute to him with these kind of practices, practices of idolatry, honor to Caesar, bow down to him, call him Lord and Savior. He is the son of God. Those are the kind of rhetoric and logic of the day that Peter is talking about. Plus, attached to these idolatrous practices are drunken parties, orgies, and sensual practices. Now, this vice list is obvious as a passion of the sinful flesh, whether you're in the Roman Empire or you're in the 2023 American Empire. The war is similar that way, but I just wanted to put in context that by not participating in these activities would be like somebody not standing up during the singing of the national anthem or not putting their hand over their heart and standing up during the Pledge of Allegiance. Have you ever heard of somebody not doing that and then it creating a big storm in the news? It created a lot of attention and then people malign someone and be like, they're not patriotic. That's what I'm talking about. This kind of maligning is both political, it's public, and it's not just about, well, you just do what you want to do in your private life. That concept is very new. It's not normal in the world of the Bible. And that's why the war and the stakes of it are really high. Your just general faithfulness to being a Roman citizen in this day would have been your participation in these activities for religious and public political purposes. So that's the reality of the war. There is, yes, the presence of the devil, but Peter's emphasis in our text and really throughout the letter is the passions in your flesh, the desires of your heart. Look actually backwards to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and you should notice this same idea of war and your flesh. 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Do you see that this idea of war being primarily in 1 Peter, a war against yourself? Not let's go get them, but rather let's kill what's in me. How many times have you pointed the finger and then been told, oh wait, I've got all of these other fingers pointing back at me. A basic move of the Christian faith is to do less finger pointing out and more pointing in. That's the kind of war we're talking about here in this text. A war with your sin. A willingness to suffer. And this leads us to the weapon. 
That's the war. We've talked about it a lot. Primarily, we need to understand how to fight. And our passage, if it gives us anything, is not just telling us, guys, it's hard out there being a Christian. If you don't engage in certain parties in your family over July 4th coming up, if you don't join in in the drinking parties, they might make fun of you. That reality is true for us as it was then. But how do you fight? And I think the usefulness of this message will be if you could start giving yourselves reasons to choose suffering instead of sin. Would you rather have lots and lots of pleasure now, pursuing all the joy that the flesh could offer, and then face judgment? Or would you rather choose and sign up for suffering as a Christian? This text is going to encourage you to choose the latter option. Choose a willingness to suffer. Here's the weapon in a short, simple summary. Verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with a kind of thinking. What kind of thinking is it? A thinking that is like Jesus and a thinking that is about Jesus. Think about Christ. Think like Christ. Christ's your weapon. The cross is the weapon. What does verse 1 begin with? Therefore, meaning he's been talking about something and then he wants to say, on the basis of what I just said in chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, therefore, arm yourselves with a kind of thinking. Look backwards, review from last Sunday, verses 18 to 22, only tell you about Jesus. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but then he was made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then his resurrection and ascension, similar to your baptism, union with death, union with new life, it preaches and proclaims gospel truth of victory and vindication for innocent sufferers. Christ suffered innocently, the righteous for the unrighteous, for a purpose, for a good, positive outcome. And it was to bring people to God, to bring them into salvation. And God rewarded his suffering with resurrection, new life, and ascension into heaven at the Father's right hand, the highest place of honor. So think like that. Think like Jesus. What did Jesus think like in order to endure suffering even as an innocent man who did not deserve it? Did he think at all? Was he just a robot going through the motions? No, he thought. He was human. He had human passions like you and me. So what did Jesus do? And we have such an amazing story in the Bible of Jesus thinking through the reality of suffering and the cross. And there he is, bowing before God in prayer in the garden called Gethsemane. And here's how you think like Jesus. Not my will, but yours be done. Think like Jesus. Not 
my will, but yours be done. If you'd like to summarize the weapon, it's, it's that. To think like Jesus is to think not my will, but yours be done. Isn't that what our text is saying in verse 2? So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Not my will, not my flesh, not my desires, but yours. That's the basic move, just in terms of a thought in your head. Think like Jesus does. Well, I have needs, Pastor Phil. I have cravings. I have desires. My body just takes over. I I can't help it. I'm just a victim. Not my will, my passions, my desires, yours. They must be done. This is what led Jesus to the cross, since Christ suffered in the flesh, and he did this, why? For you? How about you arm yourself with the same way of thinking, so that you then would say, I'll do this for God. He already did this for me. That's the basic move. Think like Christ, and think about Christ. I think another good way to say it is the weapon is the gospel. Friend, if you're here today and you're a guest, you're a visitor, it's your first time at embassy, I like to talk about the gospel, like every Sunday. And here's no exception, not because I want to have an agenda to the sermon. I would love for you to see that the real oomph of our text is on the basis of the good news of what Jesus has done, therefore think like Christ. Think about Christ and what he did, therefore, so you can think like Christ. Do you all see that link in the Bible and not just because Pastor Phil thinks that gospel-centered sermons is the right way to do church? That's actually the way Peter thinks and talks and instructs. Oh, brother or sister, some of us have grown up in church far too long throughout our lives. Many of you in this room, the vast majority of you have been in church a lot. And it is very, very easy to get to thinking that Christianity is about my performance to not sin. Our text is telling you how to not sin, but it doesn't tell you to do it by a list of rules or to-dos or standards that are made up by men. It tells you to think about Christ and think like Christ. And I wonder if you've ever been instructed at how to stop sinning. You know how many times people come to me and confess sin? It's It's quite a bit, actually. And I think that's a healthy sign, praise God, that we have tender hearts and people that want to get help with their sin. But here's the thing. How do you finally put sin to death? How do you stop sinning? I'd love for each of you right now to start thinking, all right, if this summer, June, July, and August, there was one sin that you'd like to just be ceased and done with forever, would that be a good summer? Just this one particular nagging sin. I want it to be over. Our text tells us how this weapon is powerful and it puts sin to death. Read carefully verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, not my will but yours be done. Because, why should you do this? Why should you arm yourselves with this weapon? Because whoever suffers in the flesh they will cease from sin and this is 
They, in the past, made a decision, not my will, but yours be done, and it had ongoing, continual effect of not sinning. Many people read this on the surface and think, wow, this sounds like when you become a Christian, you no longer sin anymore. That's silly. Don't think that way. I don't think there's any reason to believe that in 1 Peter. I don't think there's any way to believe that anywhere else in the Bible. The reality of ongoing sin and struggle is all through the pages of Old and New Testament. So clearly, let's just remove that option. And let's just think, what's the logic of what Peter's saying? I think he's trying to tell you how powerful this weapon is. If you start thinking like Jesus, you necessarily will not be sinning. If you start thinking like Jesus and you have the option, should I engage in this orgy for this cultic practice of the Roman Empire or should I be willing to suffer? Willingness to suffer or participate in what's going on without suffering? Answer, choose the willingness to suffer. Not my will, but yours be done. When that's your choice, when that's your heart posture, I'm willing to suffer, you won't sin. Sin, most often, especially in these cases, is about me choosing my will over God's, and it's about me choosing instant gratification now instead of eternal pleasures forevermore. It's a trust in the promises of God rather than a trust in the empty promises of sin. So if you choose that God's way, his will, his goodness is better, and you, by faith, think about that, and then actually do it, you won't sin. You'll cease from that sin. Let's put it another way. Let's think very specifically about the actual example that Peter's talking about. So there's this drinking party. Whether it's Roman, political, motivated party, Let's just say it's, it's a good weekend party on Memorial Day weekend. And you could participate in drunkenness, as this point says. People do this all the time. People did this 2,000 years ago. They did it this last weekend. You have the option of saying no, knowing that you might get maligned for this choice. Teased, made fun of some sort of pressure. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about people are going to pick up rocks and start throwing them at you. He just says malign them. Means you're going to get teased. You're going to get made fun of. You're going to get pointed at. What's wrong with you? Why won't you come and join us in this drinking party? You think you're too good for us? If you choose, I'd rather have that maligning treatment from my best friend from my mom or my dad, my cousin, my aunt or my uncle, I'd rather have them make fun of me until I die than disobey my Savior Jesus. Do you see the difference of like, well, then you're not going to give in to the drinking party. If that's your heart posture, if you have a willingness to say, I'll endure suffering, that's the thinking, that's the weapon, it's the gospel. It's the gospel of what God has done for you, and it's the gospel that teaches you the path of how you should live now for God in righteousness. No longer live for just the cravings of your human desires. I'm just really hungry for, and then fill in the blank with whatever the thing that you want right now. And the willingness to say, no, 
and then the willingness to say yes. I love Don Carson's helpful commentary on 1 Peter where he says, all throughout 1 Peter, you must make sure you understand, not just here, but all over the New Testament, it's not enough just to say no. You also have to realize you say yes to something better. This is what fuels faith, is that you're not just saying, well, guys, let's just kind of link arms every Sunday. Let's say no this week to sin. Let's say yes to a superior pleasure. Let's say yes to a greater satisfaction in Christ. Let's not get drunk with wine, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, but let's be drunk in the Spirit. Like, that's a paraphrase of Ephesians chapter 5. Let's be filled, overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Saying no in the Christian life is not about God's just out to kill us of all of our fun and joy. It is to give you true joy. It's to restore the way that God made you in the first place so that you can learn that your sinful passions are really destroying you. So arm yourselves is the command with the weapon of thinking about Christ and his suffering for you. Thinking like Christ, not my will, but yours be done. It's powerful. It'll kill sin. But if it just sits in the house, in the garage, let's say, for sake of argument, you're a soldier. You're in war. You have a weapon. If you've never been trained to use it, or you leave it back at the base, as the war is going on, it does you no good. So what does it look like for us to engage in this battle, this battle of our flesh, and use the weapon of the gospel? Have you ever thought about it that way? What does it look like for us to engage the weapon of the gospel? Well, we have to train. We have to wear it, wield it, use it. There must be a sense of putting it on and practicing the gospel. Practicing this way of thinking in small ways, in big ways, and for the rest of your life. Earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, you'll see that Peter says, Be ready. Prepare your minds. Be sober-minded. Some of you might remember the analogy there was, Put on your running shoes. This is about having long flowing robes. And it says, literally, gird up or tie up your skirt, your long flowing robes, and get ready to run. That's the mindset. The picture in chapter 3, verse 15, is that you should always be prepared to explain the hope that is in you. Like a good lawyer in court did all of their homework and they showed up and there's going to be a defense and then they are ready to make a defense. Here, we're in war. Running shoes, skirt girded up, all the prep work is done. But here it's, how do I use the weapon? How do I put it into practice? And I think it's by realizing that we must not just do Christian practices, but do them with a Christ-centered effort. So, for example, what does it look like to ready yourself for suffering? 
I think we could think of dozens of good and excellent applications. For example, you could read the scriptures. You could pray, God, make me ready. You could read Christian biographies and see what it's like to suffer. You could sign up for the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter and get regular email invites in your inbox that tell you about suffering around the world. You could gather on a Wednesday evening or a Sunday morning downstairs and join corporate prayer and pray for the needs of the church. And regularly, this church, we pray for persecuted Christians and we pray for the needs of the people around the world that are in desperate need for prayer. You could read good Christian biographies. One of my favorite is To the Golden Shore by Adoniram Judson and how he persevered through suffering. So many good things that you could do in terms of preparing yourself. Join a local church. Be accountable to somebody. Prepare yourself in training in discipleship, a one-on-one relationship, not just with a general church body, but meet with someone regularly. But you could do all these things. And it could just be another list of rules. And if it doesn't actually use the gospel, I don't think you're going to make much progress. So read the Bible, but read about Christ in the Bible. Read in a posture like Christ. Read not my will, but yours be done as just a a typical way of applying God. Your ways are much higher, much better than mine. Pray. Pray with a spirit dependent on the gospel in Christ. Encourage one another with the gospel. A besetting sin. You want, you want it to end. This summer, three months, I'm going to just go at it and try and kill a sin in my life. A, a sinful passion. A very practical thing to do would be to get an accountability partner. Confess that sin and then make sure that partner doesn't say, well, thanks for sharing that. Then that partner needs to preach the gospel to you. Give you encouragement about hope in Christ. Remind you of who you are and your new identity in the gospel. Gather at a local church that centers its message week in and week out. The songs that we sing, the scriptures that we read, the sermons that we preach, the Lord's Supper that we take. Is it not all to remind you about Christ? How good he is, how great he is. Do you see the difference between just busying yourself like running on a treadmill and not making any progress because you did all of the right things? Well, or did you? It was like you're going through exercises preparing for war, but you you left your, your sword back in the barracks. You didn't even have your weapon. It's impotent. It's got no power. So put it on. Use it. Use the gospel to preach to yourself, to one another. One of the best examples of this that I came across this week is just a helpful summary of this whole passage and this whole idea. Said this. What this passage in 1 Peter means is the death of Jesus Christ, when we fully understand it, it comforts us when we've fallen into sin. But it does something more. It never, never, never leads us into temptation to sin. To the one who is considering to maybe disobey God, Jesus and his cross cries out. I did all of this for you so that you could die to your sins and live to righteousness. 
Why? Why would you want to do this sin? Will you put your own hand now around my throat? Will you add to my flogging and strike me and break open your break open my skin with your fists? You might as well be one of those that are saying, prophesy, prophesy, who hit you? Your sin would be like hitting me one more time. Will you account what I have done of such little value that you would do this to me by choosing to sin this week? Will you design to frustrate and disappoint the very goal and the aim of these sufferings on the cross? Don't you see then, how can any person who is so deeply grieved by the cross, go on and live as an enemy of the cross in a sinful life. There is no more powerful motivation to avoid sinning, to endure our temptations, to stick with a holy life, dealing with difficult and disappointing times, than if you look at the cross and see how he dealt with the pain the difficulty, and stuck with you to the end. Brothers and sisters, do you see that the incentive to live a holy life is not based on fear-mongering? The way to fight against the passions of the flesh and live for righteousness, it's based upon love. The three great virtues of the Christian life, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. When the cross becomes love, love from God, showing you the the extent that he would go to suffer in your place for your sins, then it puts us in a kind of overwhelming, humbled, grateful heart disposition. How can I go on sinning against him? This is what it means to take the power of the cross and put it to use. Thrust the scriptures, not just any scriptures, but like 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us to God. It's short, it's simple, but it's potent. If you need some scripture memory work to help fight sin, pull out like a little dagger in your pocket. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, to live for righteousness. I can't tell you how many times that very move, that weapon of the gospel has encouraged me to not sin in the middle of temptation. I'm not saying this as an objective outsider. I'm saying it as one in the club, one who's fought sin and used the gospel and seen its potency to change my heart, to make me a new person, to be willing to endure suffering. I think it's very telling if you look at your life and find, well, Am I willing to serve first? Am I willing to lay down my life in the home in small practical ways? Do I care for the other needs of the church? In all of these ways, this is the same move. Christ 
gave everything for you. So what would it cost to give small amounts of time, money, resources, energy, to kindly sit down and listen to someone that's struggling with their problems, to be a servant, to get on your knees and wash feet, to serve in the kids' ministry, to help with a lower-income community in Palatine. Small ways, and then at times, very, very big ways. But the core should be the cross. Not my will, but yours be done. The thinking that should hopefully be like a drum that beats. This is the rhythm that we march to. So brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to think about Christ. Think like Christ. We are in a war. The presence of sin and suffering and Satan, it's obvious. Sometimes what's overlooked is how powerful the weapon of the gospel is. Oh yeah, I've already heard that. I've looked at Christ. I took the Lord's Supper last week. I ate the bread, I drank the cup. I, I still sinned. So how come that I'm still sinning? Allow the cross to humble you so that you're not just going through the motions. Allow the cross to, like a surgeon, cut out all of the unbelief in your heart and see that you didn't just sin. You sinned against God. Your heart was filled with unbelief for God's love for you. And then preach to yourself and be reminded by the preaching each week. God did that for me. There's nothing I could give that would be too much for him. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you love us and that your love is not a mystery or a secret. We thank you that your love is demonstrated in the cross of Christ. And therefore, on the basis of what Christ has done for us, I pray that we would preach to ourselves and receive the weapon of our warfare the sufferings of Christ, that we would be armed, we would be battle ready, that we would practice, we would recite and remember the gospel again and again. Lord, help us to not get weary of hearing sometimes the same thing over and over again. But let us believe by faith in the power of the cross. And so we ask that as we take the Lord's Supper now, that you would give us incredible hunger for the goodness of your grace and glory. That you'd give us new desires that yearn and long for all that is good and right in the world. Lord, we want to pray that you would remind us of your coming judgment, the judgment of the living and the dead. And that you would compel us to live now in light of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.